I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Lan Samantha Chang on her novel, The Family Chow. Lan Samantha Chang is the author of the award-winning Hunger and Inheritance and All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost. Her work has been translated into nine languages and has been chosen twice for the best American short stories. A recent Berlin Prize winner, she received creative writing fellowships from Stanford University, the Ratcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. She currently lives in Iowa City, where she is the director of the famous Iowa Writers Workshop. And today we're going to be talking about Samantha's latest book, which is The Family Chow. Sam, welcome to Little Atoms. It's great to be here. First of all, how would you describe this novel? In one sentence, I would describe it as a Chinese-American restaurant succession novel. Okay, and it's about a, there's a massive cast of characters. I want to talk about in the main, the Chow family, the various members of the Chow family, the head of this family when the book starts. It's not giving much away because it says it right in the um, in the inside cover that Leo Chow is going to die at some point in the novel. But first of all, tell us who Big Leo Chow is. Sure. Big Leo Chow, Chinese-American immigrant, uh, moved to the Midwest to a small town in Wisconsin and established a successful Chinese-American restaurant. He's got three sons and a long-suffering spouse, Winnie. And he is, I would say, a tyrannical and charismatic guy. He's not loved by the people in his town or even by the members of his family because he pretty much does whatever he wants. And so let's talk about where that comes from. He was, you know, he's a first generation immigrant. Um, They've moved to this fictional small Midwest town, which we'll talk about why that later on. But let's talk about some reasons why why he is like he is, perhaps. I mean, he's a very, um, he's a womanizer. He just, he tells his sons that the reason to come to the U.S. is to colonize the U.S., to spread your seed in the new country. And he doesn't have a lot of fidelity to start. 
as a husband, therefore, he's not the greatest guy, although he's undeniably charismatic. As a father, he is more interested in his own dynasty, his own part in the dynasty as the head of it, than in ensuring that his children, particularly his oldest son, continue on after him. He doesn't believe he's going to die. He's so confident that he doesn't write a will, and he certainly doesn't want his oldest son to be his partner. He wants his oldest son to be, as the son claims, a dog that he can kick around. And you you mentioned his wife, Winnie, is long-suffering. In fact, when we meet her in the book, she's suffered enough, and she's decamped, too. She's basically living in a... um, like I guess like a a, a Buddhist community. So tell us something about where she is when we first start the book. Well, Winnie has done the um, traditional thing, which is wait until her youngest child leaves home for college before leaving her marriage. When James, her youngest son, leaves home to go to college, Winnie moves away from Leo to a Buddhist nunnery. It's an Americanized version of this. It's not official in any sort of formal Buddhist way, but the the women who live in the nunnery take vows and they practice Buddhism and, you know, in their individual ways. And Winnie is there because she's trying to achieve tranquility, as she says. And for her, that means the cessation of the desires that have plagued her for her life the desire for her husband, um, the desire to work hard and earn money in this new country, and generally to eat and carry on as a vital human being. She wants to stop eating meat. She wants to give up possessing things. She even leaves the family dog with Leo when she moves into this spiritual house. And let's talk about the we'll talk about the three brothers in turn. But before we do, so Leo, as you said, he's more concerned about his own position than any form of, you know, leaving a legacy to his sons. He treats them all badly, but in different ways. Let's talk about his sort of <laughs> different relationship with his three boys. Yes. I mean, you know, I was interested in exploring the way that children have entirely different childhoods and therefore different adulthoods, adult lives, depending on when they encountered their parents in their parents' lives. So the oldest son, Dago, or William, that's his American name, was born at a time when his parents had recently arrived to the U.S. and met each other and were filled with ambition, desire, hope, and especially hope for him. So they thought William was going to make their lives in America meaningful. He was going to be the star of the family. You know, he was bright and talented, and they just assumed he was going to go out there and conquer the universe. But instead, uh, he pursues an artistic field. He wants to be a musician. And, and after failing to do this for a while, is summoned back home when his mother um, is injured and takes over her job in the restaurant for a while and then just stays there for six years. And when the, the novel opens, Dago has been living at home for six years and he is now really sort of wanting a stake in the homestead. So he wants to be his dad's partner in the restaurant, so that he can move on, marry his new love. Not We're not going to talk about the, his fiancé, but his new love. 
and sort of move forward into his, his life as a big fish in a small pond. But Leo, of course, won't grant him what he wants, won't grant him the partnership. Instead, Leo says, you owe me money. <laughs> the second son, Ming, is, I would say, I mean, I describe him as somebody who has a middle child syndrome in that he resents not getting as much attention as his older brother and decides he's going to make up for it by succeeding in an extraordinary way. And to some, way, to some extent, he does. He, in a very American way, succeeds. He moves to New York City. He um, makes a ton of money as a banker, and he has a goal of making even more money. And he went to a good college, has a great education. He um, He's doing well in that way. But I think he's been let down by his parents who don't really take him as seriously as they take the older brother. And so I think, you know, he's just a little, he's a little wounded. He's wounded by his family. He's also wounded by his recognition that being an Asian man in the U.S. is not the same as being a white man. And he's, a, he's hung up on that, on identity issues. Um, their younger brother, the youngest, James, he's escaped a lot of these issues. Uh, he's also sort of lost out on his Asian heritage in that he was pretty much raised by parents who had been in the U.S. for long enough so that their English was better and that they were just tired and too busy to pay very much attention to him. So he got a lot of upbringing from his older brothers who spoke to him in English. He doesn't speak Chinese. He's a very sweet kid. He wants to be a good son. He, wants, he loves his parents. He wants to become a doctor, go to medical school. He's in college when the novel starts. And just live an ordinary life. And when we first meet James, we see this because he, he helps somebody, a stranger, which, you know, is a, a very altruistic thing for him to do. He's training to be a doctor, so it's the right thing to do. But also, as it turns out, we don't know for a while, but what he does there, we're not obviously going to talk about the plot, about what happens, but what he does kicks off what will come back, like a, an element of the plot that will come back later in the novel. Yes. I mean, without meaning to, in his efforts to help an old Chinese man in the train station, he sets off a, a series of events that come back to sort of haunt the family in the second half of the novel. I would also say that one of the ways in which Leo, the father, has let down his sons is by being a man of the kind he is, in that he's cheating on their mother and James doesn't recognize this until at some point in the middle of the novel, he suddenly has a childhood memory and realizes that at one point he had accompanied his father on a flandering visit. <laughs> and I think that Leo sets a bad example for all three of his sons and that they all struggle with that. So this, the restaurant, which is it's called Fine Chow, which is, I must say, an amazing pun. Um, <laughs> but this, this restaurant that the family own and you know, that the story centers around, tell us something about this place. Sure. Um, you know, it was, it was started by Leo and Winnie back in the day when there were very few Asian ingredients in the stores. In fact, the way I imagine it, they have to bring their ingredients from Chicago to their town in Wisconsin, and they eventually, you know, grow things in their gardens. And I, I imagine the restaurant as being sort of 
a very idiosyncratic but successful business where the Chow family arriving in this town of Haven before Chinese restaurants were popularly distributed or well-known even, they create food that is sort of an Americanized version of what they themselves grew up eating in order to please the customers. In fact, there's a list in the kitchen of that Winnie made very early on, things Americans like. And then there's a list of, you know, noodles and dumplings in the same soup or large chunks of meat. And then things Americans don't like, which includes, you know, meat on the bone, aside from chicken wings and drumsticks. And rice porridge and, you know, just things that most Chinese people consider a part of their daily diet, such as the rice gruel that Americans look at askance. And I think that one of the reasons they're successful is that they've adapted the restaurant to suit the palate of the town where they live. Yeah, it's 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 a major setting in the in the book. I mean, there are two major meals in the book. The first one takes place at Winnie's nunnery, and it's an all-vegetarian luncheon feast. And then the second meal is an enormous party, an omnivore's holiday party that takes place about halfway through, in which Dago, who's a more ambitious cook than his father, makes a number of more authentic dishes and serves them to the entire Asian American, well, yes, Asian American community of Haven, along with some of their friends. Appetite is a big theme in the book, I would say. that I would say that the um, character's desire to eat is just one indication of, one manifestation of their desires, the desires that brought them to this country and that they continue to pursue, even though, you know, they've sort of failed on some of their earliest dreams, but they continue to have very strong desires and urges after 35 years in America. I was going to bring up food later on. We'll do it now because obviously you just mentioned that there's a, there's a couple of major set pieces around meals, large celebratory meals. Obviously, it's also you know set in a restaurant, but even outside of the restaurant context, there's lots of descriptions of, of food and people giving gifts of food. The bonds between there's rival restaurants in the in, <laughs> in the story as well. Right. Um, there's a, a, a like a long-standing enmity between two families um, in rival restaurants. Um, just tell us something more about just writing the descriptions of food that fill this book. Sure. I mean, you know, food. Writing about food comes very naturally to me. I love reading about food. I read cookbooks for pleasure. I don't cook very often because I'm too busy, but I just love imagining food, and so. One of the great pleasures of the book was to sort of imagine the meals that these characters were eating at various points. The novel is based on, you know, another work of literature. It's an homage to the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And one of the interesting things about the Brothers Karamazov, if you go through it, you'll see that every meal that the characters ate in the first five or 600 pages is described sometimes lovingly by the author. And I think that that was one of the things about that book that appealed to me so much. And I maybe took it a little further in my book, but not that much further. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lan Samantha Chang. We're talking about her new novel, The Family Chow. And Samantha, let's let's go back to the town Haven. So it's a it's a fictional town somewhere in the well, it's in Wisconsin. It's not somewhere in the Midwest. We know where it is, but in the Midwest of America. And as you describe Leo and Winnie first coming there, they were sort of pioneers. But by the time the novel starts, as you said, there's a substantial Chinese-American community in the town. But it's not New York. You know, it's not Los Angeles. It's a, it's a small town in the Midwest. And I wanted to talk about why particularly you chose to set this community in a small town. Well, you know, I grew up in a town similar to Haven, located in Wisconsin. Um, I spent, I was born in Appleton, Wisconsin, and I spent the first 18 years of my life in Appleton. That brought about, you know, many of the tendencies and interests of my adult life growing up in a somewhat out of the way place in a culture that was largely strange. Um, to me and my family. And it's also something that I take for granted. And so for years, I didn't write about it. My first three novels don't really relate to this subject. But when I started this book, it just seemed very natural that this family should be located in a town similar to the town where I grew up. The book explores you again. You alluded to this in in the first part in the discussion about the brothers, but the sort of book alludes to, I guess, the changing in identity of the various generations. Obviously, Leo is a, a first generation immigrant, but with the boys, it's almost like they're of different generations, as you said. In that, you know, Daegu is very, you know, very much wants to be the good son and take on the mantle of the restaurant. Ming wants to get as far away as possible from the older generation and in a lot of ways, you know, resents who he is. 
and James is even more distant from that in that, as you said, he doesn't he doesn't even speak Mandarin. I wanted to talk some more about this, you know, this sort of generational conflict that's that's going on in terms of I mean, I guess in terms of how the brothers all feel in relate in their relationship with America. I would say that Ming is very conflicted. The middle brother, who's conflicted by nature, is the most conflicted about being in America, and yet he is most determined to succeed by its rules, you know, make a lot of money. Uh, I think that what happens in the book is that the kids, the three sons, go through the experience of losing their parents. And in that experience also, they have a number of adventures, and they go through a number of traumatic experiences, I guess would be one way to describe it, but they also create trauma. Each of them does things that they might later regret in retrospect. In doing this, they create their lives in America. They, as Ming later says, they have their ghosts. They made their ghosts in America. And so they've become Americans. You know, the question that Ming asks is, are they really immigrants anymore? The parents who are the strongest tie to the old country are gone. And so what? where does this leave the three children? I mean, the thing that's interesting to me, as I myself reach a point where you know, I've lost both of my parents during the time when I was writing this book. Um, my sisters and I are all settled here in the United States, and we're pretty much Americans. But like the characters in the book, we don't look entirely American. Some people might come up to us and assume that we've still just arrived here. And I find that particularly an interesting sort of situation for Asian American immigrants. You know, you could be the American-born child of immigrants. Um, You could be many decades into your life and still be seen as an outsider. This country is made of immigrants, as is often said, primarily of immigrants, but many of them sort of lose that identity fairly easily and never, never are never questioned. You know, their their place in this country is never questioned. Um, I think that the Chow family is in a different situation. And so I wanted to explore that transition. And one of the ways you, you explore that is the, the very structure of the book. So as I said, we know from the very beginning that there's there's going to be a death. And also yeah. that Dargo is going to be accused of that, of that murder, if it indeed it is a murder. And so the way that the book is structured, it, literally the halfway point is when this happens. And the first half of the book is basically, you know, described as, you know, section one, how the Chow family see themselves. Section two, then once the trial starts, is how they are seen from the outside yes. world. And the perspective slightly changes. And this is, a, this is a really great idea. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about, about how that perspective changes. Sure. Um, before the trial or before this untimely death of Leo Chow, um, the family is largely overlooked by the community around them. People go to the restaurant, they see the family, they eat their food, but they don't ever think about them. They live relatively private lives, almost invisible lives. And also the the lives of the uh, Chinese American community around them are somewhat invisible. It's like they're seen, but they're not seen. They're not known. And in the first half of the book, I try to describe the relationship of the different family members and their members to the community as known by the community and the family. In the second half of the book, 
how, you know, the others see them. This takes place because the death of Leo Chow opens up an investigation that makes this story um, of the Chow family public, not only to the white members of their town who didn't pay much attention to them before, but to the community on the internet and the U.S. at large. And so there's a, I suppose you could even say the world at large. There's a different view of the family, which, you know, is illustrated by how the media and the various lawyers portray the story that we've already read in the first half. So the story is told, then retold in the trial, retold again by the lawyers and by the different members of the family. And then I think that in the retelling, you can see the different ways that the identity of the family is seen depending on who's doing the viewing, you know, the the lens of the white community, the lens of the public at large, and the way that they see these characters whom we've gotten to know in ways that are tropes or stereotypes. That was a lot of fun to do. I enjoyed writing. There's a part of the book that's written from the point of view of a character who's writing a blog. She covers the trial. We get to watch how the lawyers describe the story of what happened. And then ultimately we see what the jury thinks. Yeah, that was that was actually one of the most enjoyable parts of the book to write. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I must have said most books don't have enough bullet points. I think that's definitely uh, <laughs> definitely a, a, a yeah. good point. Um, <laughs> I'd normally ask you what other writers were an influence on on this novel, but I guess we've already talked about the main one. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, and, well, sorry. I wanted to just say, let's. Well, we can talk about others in a moment, perhaps. But basically, I wanted to ask. So, you know, the book is ostensibly a, a homage to the brothers Karamazov, and yes. and I want to talk about, apart from in you know, the depiction of food, in ways how that is in terms of like when you set out to plot out this novel, to plan what you were going to write, how you were able to use the bones of, of, of that novel to build this, you know, this story of, of contemporary America and the immigrant experience. Sure. I mean, for one thing, I was very interested in Dostoevsky's narrator, who is an anonymous first person member of the town who introduces himself and then disappears for large periods of time. The part I like is when he shows up at the trial. Uh, you know, you've been you've been engrossed in the book in the various points of view of the different brothers and other characters, and then suddenly the narrator appears again and says, "I was at the trial." Also says, "I don't know. I can't vouch for my describing what happens in the trial accurately, or even in the sequence in which it took place. So it's not even in order." Um, which, in my opinion, is one of the ways that Dostoevsky gets around trying to write a trial like an actual trial. I think that narrator was of interest to me. I wanted to create an omniscience, but it was I wanted it to be a community omniscience. And so the point of view moves around and it's also omniscient. It has an omniscient opening and then it, it lives in different characters' heads um, throughout, moving around back and forth. And I really think that was inspired by the brothers Karamazov, the the point of view, and then also this idea of how we see the characters as opposed to how they see themselves. I would say Leo Chow is my rendition of Fyodor Pavlovich, uh, you know, just a kind of cruddy guy on some level, but also funny. I find Leo funny anyway. 
there's a huge amount that I enjoyed in the Brothers Karamazov and internalized as I read it over and over and taught it that I think inspired various scenes in the book. The thing I did not tackle was the enormous um, spiritual message of the Brothers Karamazov, but I enjoy that. I just didn't think it was appropriate for my book. I think the themes of my book have to do with identity, assimilation, long-term assimilation, more contemporary American issues. To finish it off then, can I get you to read us a little bit? Sure, I'd love to. I will read the very opening, which is told in this community perspective. So these are the first words of the book. For 35 years, everyone supported Leo Chow's restaurant. Introducing choosy newcomers by showing off some real Chinese food in Haven, Wisconsin. Bringing children, parents, grandparents, not wanting to dine out with the Americans, not wanting to think about which fork to use. You could say the manifold tensions of life in the new country, the focus on the future, tracking incremental gains and losses, were relieved by the fine chow. Sitting down under the dusty red lanterns, gazing at Leo's latest calendar with the limp-haired Taiwanese sylphs that Winnie hated so much, waiting for supper, everyone felt calm. In dark times, when you're feeling homesick or defeated, there is really nothing like a good steaming soup and dumplings made from scratch. Winnie and Leo Chow were serving scallion pancakes decades before you could find them outside of a home kitchen. Leo, 35 years ago, winning his first poker game against the owners of a local poultry farm, exchanged his chips for birds that Winnie transformed into the shining chestnut-colored duck dishes of far-off cities. Dear Winnie, rolling out her bing the homemade way, two pats of dough together with a seal of oil in between, letting them rise to a steaming bubble in the piping pan. Leo, bargaining for hard-to-get ingredients, Winnie, subbing wax beans for yard-long beans, plus home-growing the garlic, greens, chives, and hot peppers you used to never find in Haven, their garden giving off a glorious smell. You could say the community ate its way through the Chow family's distress, not knowing whether Winnie was happy, whether Big Chow was an honest man. Everyone took in the food on one side of their mouths, and from the other side they extolled the parents for their son's accomplishments, heaping praise upon the three boys who grew up all bright and ambitious, who earned scholarships to good colleges, commending them for leaving the Midwest. Yet everyone was thankful when the oldest, Dago Chow, returned to Haven. Dago coming home to his mother, moving into the apartment over the restaurant, working there six days a week. Dago, the most passionate cook in the family. Despite the trouble between Winnie and Big Chow, everyone assumed the business would be handed down fairly, peacefully, father to son. Now, a day after the shame, the intemperate and scandalous events that began on a winter evening in Union Station, the community defends its 35-year indifference to the Chow family's troubles by saying, no one could have believed that such good food was cooked by a bad person. So I've been talking to Lan Samantha Chang. We've been talking about her new novel, The Family Chow, which is out in the UK from One, which is an imprint of Pushkin Press. Samantha, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89Up. 
The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.